Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Postcards, the podcast that takes your imagination on a voyage across the world. I'm Greg Dickinson, I'm a travel journalist at The Telegraph, and each week I'm calling up one of the world's finest adventurers or travel writers, and I'm asking them to tell me the stories behind three travel photographs from their own personal archives. Think of them as their desert island pics, if you will, and they'll all be available online so you can check them out as you listen. Uh, The links will be in the show notes. But without further ado, this week's guest is the one and only Griff Rees-Jones. A graduate of the Cambridge Footlights, Griff made his big break in the TV comedy show Not the Nine O'Clock News, and later Alas Smith & Jones with his comedy partner Mel Smith. My actual first experience of Griff was as the voiceover artist of the brilliant children's TV cartoon Funny Bones, which came out in 1992 when I was just two years old. But anyway, after a career in comedy and voiceover work for Skeletons, Griff has transitioned into one of the country's favourite TV travel presenters, hosting shows as far afield as Burma, New Zealand. He travelled across Africa by train. And through everything he does, there's this kind of wit and candour, which I think make him a truly great and entertaining travel guide. I spoke to Griff on the phone while he was at home in Suffolk, where he told me he's actually been a little bit surprised by how much he's been enjoying being unable to travel due to the lockdown. I didn't realise it was going to be quite so long or how much I was going to find the idea of being in a sort of house arrest with no future so so appealing. There's a sort of sense in which you're in a sort of timeless world and I've never been in a timeless world in my entire life. The aspect of being able to watch just nature take its course in my garden has been incredible. Where I'm sitting, I look out on the estuary of the River Stour, and I first came here when I was about eight, and we sailed up from Harwich, and as you come up the river, which is quite a deserted sort of estuary, partly because of Harwich, because they don't like a lot of boats to come past all the ferries, which used to be so much part of Parkston Quay, the, um, the river is, is one of the least sort of um, developed. It's not like the Hamble. There are not thousands of boats here. But um, when I uh, first sort of was in, not that I could use a bit of spare money, I decided that what I'd like to do is, is get out and, um, and be by the river. So I've lived here for 35 years. And, um, and it's a sort of starting point for all my journeys from now. But my father's idea of a holiday was simply to leave West Mersey and sail round the coast and sit in a muddy creek. 
So I never travelled abroad. Obviously now you're, you're pretty well-travelled indeed, aren't you? I mean, you've been to all every corner of the planet pretty much. Well, one of the things I'm doing at the moment is writing the second volume of my um, autobiography. And I picked it up just sort of like... Because <laughs> the first one took me up to joining the BBC, which I did when I was uh, as a radio producer. So this is just such a bizarre thing to be doing a podcast because this is just like the sort of work I used to do when I was when I was uh, 25. And um, I was a radio producer. And so um, it's just funny that I'm, I'm writing about the, one of the first holidays I took as a radio producer was just in the first, during the first series of Not the Nine O'Clock News. And I was in that and then took two weeks out from it and went to Egypt. And I can honestly say that my impressions of being in Egypt are easier to write about two weeks in Egypt than trying to remember anything about making the first series of Not the Nine O'Clock News. I can't remember I can't remember a single thing, a single incident or what happened in rehearsal. That was just work. But suddenly I arrived in Cairo and everything, all the memories, all the events and the extraordinary circumstances and the sort of crossing, trying to get across the Nile to get to the Valley of the Kings and negotiating a sort of um, a fellow to take us over there and all that stuff, all that is as clear as day. Well, Griff, we'll be hoping to lean on your photographic memory for your travel experiences in this podcast as well, because obviously the purpose of this show is to share three photos from your personal travel photo albums and to tell the stories behind them. So to begin with, I've got here in front of me a photo of a strikingly barren, icy landscape. The listeners will be able to look at this online if they want to, but can you just describe it in as much colour and detail as you possibly can? In front of us is um, a a stretch of frozen water. That's an inlet from a sort of loch or fjord. And beyond that is a very black mountain with quite a lot of snow streaking down it. But you have to look quite closely. This is why I like this photograph, because uh, on this side, you'll notice that there are some some houses uh, and a little bit of a road leading to the house. We're in Iceland, and this is... March and so typical as to be almost for anybody who's been to Iceland totally unnoticed. <laughs> I mean, it's just standard. The, the one thing you get when you go to Iceland, and I have to say, just in case you're interested, I didn't want to go. The thing that you get from it is this extraordinary uh, landscape exhaustion. You get sort of, you get majestic overload. You've never seen anything like it. Every turn. We were on the coastal road, working our way from the very far north round to get back to Reykjavik via a series of stopover points. But what this is typical Icelandic farm territory. In other words, that'll be a farm in front of us, and most of these areas have been populated since the ninth century on terms which are sort of still adhered to today with these isolated farmsteads. And they only really function as farms for half the year. So this is March and they're still waiting for everything to melt. So you say, do you say you didn't, you didn't want to go there? No, I didn't want to go. No, no. No, my, my wife wanted to go with my mate, Peter, and uh, his wife. And I, I said, not Iceland. It's just a cliché. Everybody goes to Iceland. (laughs) That's how bad I am to persuade to really go. I always need to go somewhere where everybody else hasn't gone. 
And the idea that I would be going to Iceland, you know, just following a trip, which you meet, you know, you go down the pub. Where have you been? I've been to Iceland, mate. You know, everybody's been to Iceland. But actually, it was surprisingly worthwhile. One thing, which is good, which you can see from this photograph, is if you've never taken a good photograph in your life, you couldn't fail in Iceland. I mean, you just have to literally get the camera. This is just done on a phone. You know, you just get your phone out, you go, bonk, out the window of the car, and you've got a sort of a photograph that you could dress up a bit and sell in a poster shop. I'm interested to know, Griff, does this kind of stark landscape sing to your soul, or would you have preferred to have been in, like, a exotic, faraway city propping up a bar? No, I, I love this landscape. You do, on any trip that you take through Iceland, travel through the most incredible landscape you're ever going to see. Because the, what you can see in this picture is the black of the volcanic ash and the fact that all around you there are volcanoes still coming up and you're on, you travel across mountains which were only created 3,000 years ago. And what's really interesting in doing research to that is that if one of these goes up again, it really explains A pyroclastic flow can move at the speed of a, of a jet plane at 600 kilometres an hour. So it's not like if you're in Pompeii and you look up and you see lava, you know those pictures they show of places like that, they show the lava coming and you think, oh, I'd be able to get out of the way of that. A pyroclastic flow, when it explodes, when it goes up and it can't get into the atmosphere, collapses and that collapse forces it out, carrying boiling hot dust and fumes, things like that. Um, up to 50 kilometres in radius at colossal speeds, speeds that nobody could get away from. It makes us think because we're actually, we're living in a world which just hasn't experienced these things for a long time, but it doesn't mean they're not happening. You know, it's great to be in Wales and realise that Wales is moving a centimetre and a half further away from the United States every year. <laughs> We're not, we don't live in a stable world, we live in a geological world, which in the fullness of extraordinary lengths of time is still cracking up and opening, and, and that's why Iceland is there. Now, moving on from volcanoes and pyroclastic flows to another slightly more stable element, I'd like to turn to your second photograph. So this is, for the listeners, a what I'd describe as a maritime action shot. Um, there's water splashing into the camera and you you actually look like you're about to fall ass first into the sea. So tell me, what's actually going on here? Uh, well, we're in a race, funnily enough, in the south of France. And uh, that is a boat called Argyle. And she's uh, 57 foot, built in 1948. And uh, she uh, was built as a racing boat. So we still race her. And that's me at the helm, and we've just hit a wave because sometimes, uh, luckily, we get some wind and sometimes we don't. And we're built for, for Atlantic sailing. So I just, that's what I do. And um, across the summer, we take her uh, back and forth across the Mediterranean. And I've also explored a lot of the Mediterranean in this boat. Right, and so you've, you're obviously you're racing that boat. You've You had the TV show... Three men in a boat with Rory McGrath and Dara O'Brien. What what is it that what is it that draws you to to things that float on water? I don't know. I tell you what, it's this partly this sense of being your own traveller, and you never get that better than being in a boat. We've gone in the last three years. We've gone down to Naples. They have a very good regatta in Naples, and we go down to Naples. We go into the Borgo, and if you're in a little boat, 
you're basically a king. You don't have to be uh, Roman Abramovich and turn up in a great big sort of thing like that. That actually turns you into somebody who has to have a huge staff who try and get you booked into places. If you're in a small boat, you turn up, throw the anchor out, walk ashore, join thousands of people. Portofino is like, like, I wouldn't go there. It's like going to the January sales. Even in, I mean, when were we there? June, out of season. I've never seen a place so crazily um, uh, ruined by the by tourism in my life. And, and Capri is the same, I'm afraid. It's even the mayor of Capri has said enough already. Go away. Leave us alone. We can't cope anymore. There are too many people coming here. If you go to the other side of the bay, which you can if you've got your own little boat, Proshida, and Proshida is just a suburb of Naples, which happens to be on an island, far more fascinating than Capri. Um, nobody really goes there except locals who live there. If you're in Naples, I really recommend going to Proshida. It's just to explore the central uh, palaces, street of palaces, in this, in this, on this island are amazing. And it's a bit like going to Naples, I imagine as Naples would have been 50 years ago. So it sounds like this ability to follow your nose, shake off the tourists and kind of sniff out out of the way places is the thing that really draws you to sailing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I first hired a boat I was in a play, and the play had a two weeks off. My son had uh, just been born, so this was 30-something years ago, 35 years ago. I said to my wife, come on, let's we, we've, because we're in this play and it's going to make a bit of money, we'll hire a boat. We hired a boat in the Caribbean, and we sailed around St. Lucia, I think it was, and we sailed around, and we, uh, for one day, we just, we just uh, parked up the boat just off a beach, and came ashore, but we had a rather beautiful American-Swedish skipper, and he took us ashore in the little dinghy, got out of the dinghy, we had a picnic, we played with the little baby on the, on the sand and everything like that. And then as the sun went down, everybody else turned round and went back into the hotel for one of those slightly disappointing Caribbean dinners. And um, we were able, we sort of waved, and the skipper came over on the little boat, uh, put us into the uh, into our little boat. We jumped aboard our boat and sailed away across the horizon. And that was the point, I'm afraid, where I thought, when I come back here, which I have done on a few occasions, um, I never want to be stuck in one of those compounds, <laughs> you know, which is sort of surrounded by a big barbed wire fence, you know, where people are doing limbo dancing for me. I just like this business of being able to say, this is the way to do it. But this is the other thing. I'm an impulse sort of person when I travel. I hate, you know, somebody saying, oh, we're booking this and we're going to go in. So I think, well, what if I'm doing something else? So I love the idea of a week still to go. That's why I can't, you know, what's that, what's that thing, um, that booking late, latebook.com or whatever it's called. What is it called, that late? Yeah, last, lastminute.com. Last minute. They're not last minute. They don't even know what last minute is. <laughs> If you go on it and you go, I'm going tomorrow somewhere, you can't find anything at all. They haven't got, they don't do that. They mean last minute, but sort of like in about two months time. I mean last minute. And that's what I call travel. Sometimes I do find myself going, I'm on holiday. I should be enjoying myself now. 
you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Don't we all have that? That's what makes air travel so bad, is you think, this is my holiday. I'm now going to go away to enjoy myself. This is appalling. Because <laughs> I paid 500 quid for this. <laughs> yeah, I cannot imagine anything more unpleasant than what I'm doing at the moment. This dreadful food, this ghastly... Why do I have to walk through this... This this duty free area where on this long curly whirly path now I just want to go and sit down and have a cup of coffee and get there. I couldn't agree with you more. So so there is an element of me sometimes that does that, but also I have to do something. I cannot really take sitting on a beach. I'm afraid. So there we go. There was one particular story that I, I heard about years ago. You were in a yacht that caught fire. Is that right? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't to just cheer things up. That was an accident, <laughs> right? And what what happened there then? It was the same people who wanted to go to the Galapagos Islands, and I went, "Oh, not the Galapagos Islands! What a what a cliche! Do we really have to go and do this? That everything?" But my wife was very keen on doing it, so um, and she was right. She was right, just like just like same people, just like Iceland. You know, it was great. It was amazing. in a lovely boat and then one night we were getting up early the next morning they sent us to bed at 10 o'clock and at about midnight there was a sort of knock on the door there was a real excuse me and uh, I said yes he said the captain very much like you to come on deck please and of course like everybody else I thought oh hello we're in the Galapagos there must be a meteor shower or a huge comet going across the sort of Humboldt Channel or something like that. We went on deck and the whole boat was on fire. <laughs> and we had no time to think about anything. <laughs> I've been writing a book and I picked up the computer and I had it with me on deck. And I, all I was wearing was a pair of underpants, you know, and my, holding onto my computer. And we decided, uh, Galinda, who's a big photographer, she put all her photographic and all the films she'd made already of Galapagos Islands down. And I put my computer next to it. And we jumped, we were the last people to jump in the sea and swim for it but we never saw them again. And uh, luckily, uh, there was another boat, which was about, about a mile away. And uh, after, about, after about two hours, they decided they'd come and have a look come across and see what was going on. And they sent a boat over and picked us up. They're very reluctant to do it, very reluctant, because they were worried that we weren't paying them. Do you see what I mean? In the end, I wish we'd made more of us than we did. Um, but we were two. The guy I was with, the guy who took me off, is too British all together. And was, you know, we've got to, you know, didn't want to make any. Oh, don't complain, darling. You know, <laughs> but darling, but you know, with the boats being on fire, we've all had to jump for our life. Darling, you know, it's just one of those things that happen. <laughs> and it was sort of, you know, it was. Like, <laughs> I think we should have made just for the sake of all other passengers, because even when we were rescued, there was a sort of general feeling of they didn't know what to do with us, and we were an embarrassment to them. So. Um, so it was a bit, it was all a bit weird, but uh, quite exciting at the time. Quite exciting. How do you cope in those stuff? Are you the sort of person who, do you panic, do you freak out, or, or do, you, do, you, do you remain calm? Oh, no, no, no. I only have one emotion, or two emotions, which is quite jolly and cross. <laughs> okay, and what were you, when you had to jump into the sea, presumably a bit cross? <laughs> cross, cross, I was cross. I couldn't believe this was happening. <laughs> well, I think I can speak for all of our listeners, Griff, when I say I'm very glad that you made it out in one piece, even if your laptop didn't. And it's time now to move on to our third and final photograph, which brings us safely back onto dry land. So for the listeners, this is the kind of shot that every travel writer dreams of having framed in their downstairs loo. So it's you, Griff, looking rather chic 
in sunglasses, wearing a safari jacket. You're standing in a kind of rusty open top freight train carriage. Um, blue sky overhead, desert all around you. And there's a long train snaking out towards the horizon behind you. So where are you here and what what are you up to? Well, here we are. Um, that's a photograph of me taken halfway on the way to the skeleton coast. And you can see I'm standing in a flat top freight truck. I should say that this is not a static. I didn't just leap aboard it. We are halfway there and we are travelling along when this picture was taken. And uh, the camera crew came with me, and uh, I think you can see in the background that there's a mattress on the floor, which I bought, because I knew there'd be a lot of lying around while they waited for camera shots and things like that. And there is a little chair, because I, I, I got a camp chair there. But apart from that, there was nothing in the truck. But the rest, this was my truck, which had been specially given to me to get me to Luderitz, because there are no passenger trains in Namibia, except for one stretch of 100 kilometres. Something I wanted to ask you about, Griff, was obviously you made the the transition from comedy and acting into becoming a travel presenter. Um, And I've I've done a few videos for The Telegraph myself, and I find it can be a bit of a double-edged sword, because even though you're getting to see all these amazing places and you're travelling the world, you're also working to a really tight schedule. So I was wondering, how do you find that? How do you find the balance? And do you get to explore for yourself when you go on these trips? What's amazing about television travel is the privilege it gives you. So I've done the most extraordinary things as a result of um, making television, which I would never be able to do if I'd been just an ordinary traveller. And I've also, to be honest, avoided crowds. And although I take a little crowd with me, I jump to the front of any queue because I'm making television. So that's a privilege. But you're right. Everything has to be planned. Everything has to be sorted out. I absolutely insist when I'm making television programmes on improvisation, on a level of improvisation in it. I need it to become a story of a journey and I always work with the director to try and put extra things in which make it more like a journey and more of a sort of narrative than just here's the next person who's been set up to talk to me, although I don't get any thanks for that. And it usually gets cut out by some assiduous executive producer later on, the bastards. But... But I also know that when I went to the Baltic and I made, I took a sort of sabbatical and went up leaving in June and travelling, sailing up all the way up to St. Petersburg in a small boat. Um, That's a real journey. Although I took mates with me, that didn't have any plan. We didn't know what was going to happen next. You need, in some way, if you're going to write travelogue, um, I think you need to be in company with yourself and you need to be able to stop Uh, And you need to just let things roll over you, don't you, to be a proper traveller. And as I say, in a boat, terrific. Do you go places which, you know, you'd never be able to go just by trying to travel by plane and train. Uh, Although usually you can if you're prepared to go by public bus. I think that's a very important part of all travel is I always get and try to use public buses. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And trains, of course, but trains are on the track. Let's put it that way. I remember halfway through the Nullarbor a few years ago, I thought, this is really exciting and interesting, but wouldn't it be great if this train could now leave the tracks and do a sort of, you know, three-hour excursion to the north just to have a look what's up there before we get back on the tracks and go, yes, just 
So there's a sort of, there's a different experience, isn't there, on trains? Yes, yeah. So obviously you're traveling the world presenting, you know, you've been presenting these travel broadcasting documentaries and stuff, but was was that always part of the plan? Did you always plan to move from comedy into that or, or, or was it kind of, was it serendipitous? Was it a coincidence? No, but um, I was doing a lot of sketch show stuff and I started to get jobs as BBC presenter. I presented a thing called Bookworm, which is about books for a long time. And then they came to me and said, oh, we want you to do something else, but we can't find anything for you to do. And uh, every suggestion I made, they'd say, no, no, no. It was a bit like, they say, no, no, Michael, Michael Palin's doing that. And you go, oh, all right. And in those days, these days, you can't turn on the television without seeing some witless celebrity just plumping around in a barge or a trade or anything. I mean, I speak as one who does it. But in those days, when I started doing it, it was television's really weird. If somebody's quite successful at things, as Michael Palin was, they won't, they don't want anybody else to do it to begin with. They don't, they think it'd be temerity, you know, somehow to trample on his patch. Right. So I, you know, I'd, I'd go and you'd find that the whole of the world was divided up by various now out-of-date celebrities. But um, then gradually, and they sent me off to do a programme called Mountain. And I said, right, okay. They said, I said, the only problem is I don't, you know, Peter, this is a mate of mine. I said, look, you know, the trouble is, you know, I'd, I'm pretty, I know a lot about books. I made a programme, a whole series of books. I I'm really an expert on art in many respects. But I know been up, you know, mountains, what's this got? And he said, no, it's terrific, because it means that you'll see it entirely with new eyes. You'll be our commentator on what it's like to go up mountains. I said, right. And he said, don't worry, because everybody who on the series is going to go on a special mountaineering course. And I said, right. He said, unfortunately, I've got time for you to do it, but don't worry, the people you're with have all been. <laughs> and I said, what if I fall off? And he said, if you could fall off, that would be terrific. <laughs> and then for a few years, I loved it. I did another one on rivers, and that was really exciting. That was really interesting to go bound, down through the sort of back routes of Britain. The most fascinating journey I think you can undertake is to follow the course of the River Lee from Luton into the O2 Centre. And that is one of the great revelatory historical sort of treks I've ever done. Why, why do you think it is that you, you love rivers so much then, Griff? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I've done mountains and I thought what was interesting about rivers was that the, the history, I'm, I read history, so I'm very interested in history, and uh, uh, the history of Britain is tied up with its rivers. I mean, the river's absolutely fascinating. 90% of towns in Britain were on river banks. You know, I mean, they're sort of, they are, they are essential to the idea of what a city was. And because we had much higher water levels in Roman times, that's when they first became sort of navigation, sort of, and, and quite obscure places were served by quite complicated river things. But there's very little history of this. There's not even a good, there's a good, there are good histories of the Thames, lots of them, but n there's no general book. I should write it, you see, Fanny. I should write it now. Now in this lockdown, I should get out all these books, start researching and write the book I always intended. But it's all in my book anyway, which is about called Rivers. But, um, uh, and that was the sort of account of the, where I was able to put into practice all the research that I did, which never makes it into the bloody programme. And uh, that's what, 
that's really where, that's what I was fascinated because the story of Rivers as told through this series was really important to me. There's something kind of pleasingly circular about this because we obviously began our chat with your home on the River Store and we're now coming to an end here with the Rivers of Britain. But before we let you go, Griff, I have one final question for you, which we're asking all of our guests, which is, um, once the lockdown is eased and we can travel again, where, where are you dreaming of heading to first? I need, <laughs> I need, very de- I need to get back to Naples. I've been there three years in a row and I haven't yet exhausted Naples. Naples is fascinating of all the great Italian cities. It's, it's amazing. So I will, I, it's back on my list to go back there again. I mean, I find Italy endlessly fascinating. So I, I, I know it's rather pathetic, isn't it? But I do want to get back and explore more of Italy. Griff, thank you so much for sharing your postcards with us. Thank you. To see the photographs discussed in this week's episode, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash postcards. And for a free 30-day subscription to The Telegraph, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. We'll put links to both of these in the show notes. Next week, I'll be speaking to novelist and travel writer Marcel Theroux. He's going to talk to me about backpacking in India with his dad, getting stuck in a cable car in Crimea, and his experiences in North Korea. The phrase rare glimpse is used all the time with North Korea, so much so that it's become something of a cliche. But I really felt we were seeing something of the real emotional life of the country. Subscribe now wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you don't miss our chat. Postcards is presented by Greg Dickinson and produced by Pete Norton and Theodora Luludis. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating and a review where you're listening or tell a friend about it. We know that basically every podcast asks you to do this, but it really helps us to find new listeners, which is why we ask. And if you're hungry for more travel stories from the wonderful Griff Rhys-Jones, who's reading this in the third person, follow the link in the show notes. Thank you and au revoir. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.